I enjoy listening to you sing. I pray that you enjoy singing. Here at Grace Church, we believe that the primary instrument of worship is your voice. If the guitar strings broke, if the drum burnt up, uh, if the bass shattered in half, um, we would hope that worship would continue as long as your voices can be heard. So uh, I pray that when you sing, you see yourself as the instrument of worship here at our church. Well, today we get to study the book of Esther. We get to start the book of Esther, and we'll be in Esther probably for the next four or five weeks, and we'll end uh, after the first week of December, and then we will have a small Christmas series, and then it's on to 2023. Uh, Wait, what is it? 2022. I'm jumping ahead. I'm just preemptively preparing. You know, sometimes you just look forward and you're like, I don't know what's next. Let's just skip ahead a couple of years if that's okay. Speaking of time, as an avid reader of history, it's sometimes easy to feel as if the flow of history is being shaped by big and powerful people. Has anybody else felt that way when you read history? Just big and powerful people just kind of moving things along. It can at times seem as if the rest of us small people are just kind of pawns being moved around by the whimsical desires of the more influential almost as if we were just individual billions of individual paper boats that are kind of tossed and fro by the powerful tidal waves of presidents and politicians and kings and wealthy businessmen and sociologists and philosophers. Though it's vastly more complicated than this, it does seem to have at least some historical validity. For example, Think of the way Queen Victoria's royal grandchildren spread throughout Europe in the 20th century. Have you ever noticed that all the major leaders at the initial start of World War I, including King George V of England, Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany, Tsar Nicholas II of Russia, and Ferdinand I of Romania, were all family, cousins in fact. A lot of people don't notice that. Now, to the people of the time in World War I, and still today, many historians rack up the, the Great War, the war to end all wars, as one massive family feud. Tsar Nicholas of Russia could not stand the fact that Kaiser Wilhelm would come to the family reunion and boast about how big his empire was getting how rich he had gotten, and how he planned to expand the German Empire. He was going to rebuild it. That's why he called himself Kaiser, Caesar in German. And the Tsar, whose Russian name also means Caesar, basically said there's not room in this world for two Caesars. Well, King George is over here getting happy with wine and says, I bet on Tsar Nicholas and joins him. Next thing you know, all because of this sad, wealthy, powerful group of individuals, 20 million people meet their death on the battlefield. History is filled with many such examples where the scandalous lives of the wealthy and powerful individuals determine the fate of millions, the fate of millions Arrogant Hitler exalts himself, and next thing you know, massive global war. Japanese emperor stands up, massive global war. 
presidents seeking corruption. Next thing you know, massive economic decline. These powerful individuals seem to be able to move pieces along and they shape the flow of history and the rest of us are just kind of tossed about. It's all rather frightening when you think about it, isn't it? How just a few individuals can change the course of history like that. How can God's humble, small, marginalized, sometimes weak and powerless people have peace in such a volatile world run by powerful, hostile sinners? This is where the book of Esther gives us hope. The events in Esther happen because of the arrogant and selfish ambitions of a few powerful people. And yet these powerful people themselves fall into the hands of a powerful God who himself is watching and preserving and protecting his weak, small, humble people. I hate to tell you this, but you may never be in the room where it happens. You may never be part of the group that decides the course of history. But God is always in the room where it happens. God is always behind the scenes. God is always moving and working. And because he is moving and working, we are safe in his promises. Proverbs 21.1 says that even the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord because he turns it wherever he will. Do you hear the good news of that? Even a powerful king cannot hinder the plan and purposes of God. It doesn't matter who's president. It doesn't matter who's czar. It doesn't matter who's Kaiser. It doesn't matter who is Caesar. No one can hinder or thwart the powerful promises of God. You need not vindicate yourself. You need not take up the sword. You need not fight and fight for power against powerful people in this course of history because there's a powerful, powerful God who reigns over it all. That's what Esther shows us. We are weak, small people. We're vulnerable people, and we suffer. And yet, even in our suffering, God is moving the heart of the king to do as he wills so that his redemptive plan and promises are accomplished. The end result is this. The weak, the humble, the non-vindictive are exalted. Whereas those who pursue power, those who are arrogant, those who are prideful, violent, are humiliated. That's the great reversal that we see. The self-exalting come crashing down, and the humble are exalted. That's where history's going. It's a good thing to be a weak and small person in God's kingdom. It's a good thing to be powerless in God's kingdom. You don't want to be the powerful on the day that God makes the great reversal. You want to be the weak people of God who are then exalted at his table while your powerful enemies come crashing down and are humiliated in salvation. That's what we all hope for here. The, the point is this. We, like Esther, like Mordecai, like all the Jews of Persia, are not left to fend for ourselves. 
we can trust that God is working behind the scenes and guarding us with and for his redemptive promises. Do you really believe that statement? Let me just ask you, do you really have faith and trust that there are powerful people in this world shaping the course of history, but not one of them can take it in a direction outside of God's redemptive and good plan. They may even be trying to change the course to go in a different direction. They may be trying to send you and all the world straight to hell. And yet, because God is good and sovereign and he is king, you will make it to his table to sit in his presence forever. They can't stop it. And everything they do, whether they know it or not, is used in God's plan to go exactly where he wants it to go. Just mind-blowing, isn't it? Everything they do just works together for the good plan of God. Esther starts in this way. And it happened in the days of Ahasuerus. And it happened. This is kind of the Hebrew way of saying once upon a time. Esther opens in a manner that is typical of many biblical narratives. If you, if you go back and read Ruth and you go back and read 1 Samuel, it opens in the same way. This is the way, by, by saying it this way, and it happened in the days of blah, blah, blah. The author is signaling to you that you're about to engage in a historical narrative that is going to show you how God has intervened to bring redemption in history. We're about to read a historical narrative that shows and displays God's sovereignty. Just like it happened in the days of the judges in Ruth, just like in it happened uh, with in, in, in the days of Samuel, it's about to happen again in the days of Ahasuerus. And God is going to reveal himself as king. He's going to exalt his humble people, and he's going to humiliate the self-exalting oppressors. It's especially important in this book to see that introduction, because even though the author never explicitly names God, he wants his readers to read between the lines and see how God has worked in history to accomplish his purposes, to accomplish his promises, and to save his people. As is true in the rest of scripture, Esther displays God's sovereignty over the small and the big over the powerful and the weak, over those who sit in the ashes and those who sit with the king. It's all under his sovereign control. He turns the heart of a king, the hard heart of a king, like a stream. It bends whichever way he wants it to go. So even though we have a king in this story who's absolutely wicked, even this king's heart bends according to the will of God. How crazy is that? Someone who hates God, hates his people, selfish, sinful, childish, all of them bend to the will of God. And so our story begins. It was the third year of Ahasuerus, or Xerxes. Okay, it was the third year of his reign. I've mentioned before, this is the same Xerxes that marched off to Greece to fight the Spartans. He got beaten and embarrassed, and he comes back to Persia. Okay. That event happened sometime during this time. Some scholars say that he, his divorce of Vashti happened right before it. 
He goes off, makes war, comes back, and then marries Esther. We don't know, but that's, that seems to be one of the most probable historical timelines. That he's, this is a man who is bloody, he's violent, he's powerful. Whatever, whatever the case is, whatever timeline we're looking at, something happened and he decides to throw himself a royal 180-day feast in honor of himself. Some of you have birthday months, right? Like you don't have a birthday. Like my father-in-law, November is his birthday, okay? (laughs) We get the list on October 30th of his birthday presents, and the whole month is filled with parties and food. I'm not going to say that's the wrong way to do it, but it's a whole month. Xerxes, on the other hand, decides to take a half a year to celebrate himself, a 180-day feast. All the festivities, the wine, the magnificent decorations were intended to display, and you see this in verse 4, his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness. Can you imagine throwing a party for yourself, putting big portraits on the wall of yourself, having gold decorations, abundant wine, all this food, and you tell everyone, this is in honor of me. 180 days of celebration. It's going to end in this massive seven-day festival where not just the royal court, but the whole kingdom has to take the week off and celebrate moi. That's how Esther begins. He spared no expense in his self-celebration. He has cotton curtains Whoa, cotton curtains. You know how rare that was in those days? Violet and fine linen, silver curtain rods, marble pillars, gold and silver couches. The thing that you set your keister on was made of gold. Pearly mosaics, golden wine goblets, and most importantly, bottomless wine. He goes so far and gives orders to his staff to do as each man desired, meaning that they had no limit. They wanted to indulge. There's no max out limit, right? At most business parties you go to, there's a drink limit, right? There's, there's some kind. I've never been to one of those parties, so I don't know. But I, I'm fairly confident there's like a two drink limit at most business party bars. King Ahasuerus is like, no, it's unlimited. It's bottomless wine. Do whatever they want. They want more wine, bring them more wine. And the message he's trying to show is that he has brought a paradise to earth. Rich food. He's making himself out almost as a god, isn't he? Wine without end. Food without limit. Silver curtain rods. All of this because of his royal and divine splendor. His over abundance and luxuriance. Now, on the final day of the feast, the king was merry with wine, meaning that he had applied his own command and was now drunk. And it was in the midst of his inebriated merrymaking that the king calls for his wife. He has shown off his splendor, he has shown off his pomp, his gold, and his wine. Now seemed like a good time to have his gorgeous wife to appear before the princes, have her do a little spin around so that his princes can see he truly does have everything. 
even a drop-dead gorgeous wife. For Ahasuerus, Vashti is nothing more than another resplendent possession, a trophy meant to bring him glory. We're going to see as we progress in Esther that this king tends to have a, a habit of objectifying women. He has, a, he has a habit of making them out as nothing more than objects for his own carnal pleasures. If you think Ahasuerus' command was appallingly narcissistic, if you would have struggled to obey such a command, Vashti would agree with you, which is why she refuses his summons. She has too much self-dignity to play the king's selfish, hedonistic game. She will not dance in front of the princes. She will not seductively, walk around seductively to make him look good. She's throwing the feast of her own. She's invited her own royal court to come and enjoy dinner. There's no way she's leaving that for him and for his selfish game. But her refusal leads to terrible consequences. You know, it takes a bold person to stand up to a king. It takes an even bolder person to wound a king's pride. I mean, this is the man who's planning to level Greece. He's going to leave it in the dust. He's going to try to humble King Leonidas of the Spartans. She tells him, I'm not coming to your dinner party, sweetie. I'm not dancing in front of your buddies, hun. She's too dignified, he's too prideful, and it leads to the greatest divorce in history. He's wounded. His anger burned inside of him. As rich and as powerful as he was, the fact that he could topple kings and slaughter kings, this massive, powerful man is stopped by a woman, which in the ancient world was like, what? How did this happen? He can't, he can't abide by that. So what does he do? Well, he goes to his wise counselors, and he says, my wife has hurt my feelings. What do I do? He seeks some kind of legal course. So they begin mimicking around, and you can almost just feel the misogyny in the text, right? Prince Memican stands up. He goes, king, this is really bad. Vashti's not coming to your party at your command. What happens if all the women of the kingdom stand up and do the same? We might have an outbreak in the kingdom what if women stop coming to their husbands when they're called? This is going to be a pan- pandemic, an epidemic. We need to stop this where it's at. She needs to be made an example of. The only thing to do to stop this coming contempt and wrath and plenty is to send Vashti out of the kingdom. Divorce your wife, send her out in exile from the kingdom. It seems an overreaction for not coming to the king's party. But that's the king that we're dealing with here. And not only is she to be exiled from the kingdom and he's to divorce her, the the news of the divorce is to be put on every tabloid in every language of the kingdom so that everybody knows that Vashti has now been dethroned, disgraced, shamed as a warning to all the other women in the kingdom. Because of the drunken whimsy of a powerful king, the entire kingdom is now without a queen. Talk about power. That in his drunkenness, he can get rid of a massively powerful political office like the queen. And if you thought that weren't powerful enough, 
it gets even worse. There's a point in time that he comes to actually regret his impulsiveness. We don't know how much time passed. Like I said, he could have divorced her and then gone off to Greece. He got embarrassed. If that's true, then he probably comes back a little depressed. He starts to remember Vashti, and he remembers how pretty she was. And then all of his buddies that, that help, help him, all of his buddies that uh, attend to him, decide that it's time to make good on that replacement. Here's what they say. Let the beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom. Now, all the provinces of the kingdom, remember, this is from like, he says he ruled from India to Ethiopia. This is a huge kingdom. Persian empire was massive kingdom. All the provinces are to give up their beautiful young virgins. They're to be brought to the harem, put under custody. And then it says, let their cosmetics be given them. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. Now, most Hollywood reenactments depict the events that follow as some ancient rendition of the Bachelor or maybe a Miss Persia contest, right? Where they get up, throw a few batons around and try to win the king's favor. That's not what this is. Not even remotely close. Imagine, just put yourself into these historical shoes. Imagine a national leader mandating that every family in the kingdom surrender over their most beautiful daughters just to satisfy the king's carnal pleasure. There was no invitation. There's no application process. To paint the picture, he sends out soldiers and he collects these young women. That means people knocking at your door Soldiers with spears and swords telling you to give up your daughter. There's no fight. It's just death if you don't obey. These women have no choice. The debates linger about how many women we're talking about. The smallest number I saw was maybe 1,400 women taken from their homes. 1,400 young ladies taken out of their homes against their will and taken to the harem. Each daughter would live in the harem, and I, I, we have kids here, so I'm not going to explain what a harem is right now, and undergo a year of beautification in order to make her as physically attractive as possible for the single night she would have with the king. A whole year just to get this lady ready for the king's bedroom. If she was too skinny, they'd fatten her up. If she was too big, they'd skinny her down. If her cheeks weren't puffy enough, they would do some kind of ancient form of Botox and get her ready. I mean, the whole year spent on objectification of women, making them the, the best object for the king, the best beautiful to look at, good-looking object for the king, all to satisfy one arrogant, evil, violent man. Now, I have a daughter. This is terrifying. This, I, I would I, put a sword in me because it would feel better than this. 
This is, this is tyranny at its worst, in its worst kind, with the entire kingdom having to sacrifice its children for the cravings of a megalomaniac king who puts up silver curtain rods and sacrifices the king's wine, all for his own self-glorification. What do you think he's going to do to the daughters? I think all these details are meant to show us how Esther came to the throne. And it's just worth noting, just in our realism of reading Esther, right? We, in our Sunday school versions, we don't really talk about this en- enough. VeggieTales doesn't really present it correctly. Our felt boards and our, face, our, our uh, uh, old style ways of reading it and of watching it in, in Hollywood, it's just, it just doesn't match up to the realism that's here. It's worth noting that all the events that take place in the book of Esther begin with a narcissistic king's temper tantrum because his wife publicly embarrassed him. It begins with a king who is out after his own selfish carnal pleasures and thinking about how to make all the ladies in the kingdom serve his own appetites. God's providence, God's purposes blossom in strange and rocky soil, don't they? It's a strange providence to think that it's because of Ahasuerus' intoxication, his vindictive reaction, his self-exalting hedonism, that God is moving people into places where his redemptive plan will move forward. He's advancing promises, even through a narcissistic king who probably has sex addiction. My friends, we don't talk about this as a church enough. We tend to want to sweep the depravity of the world under the carpet. I just want to be the pastor that helps you to see that God's sovereign promises and plan do not grow in a nice little incubator where the perfect mixture of warmth and light hatch into God's goodness. No, it's in the pit in the mud, in the mire of sex addiction, narcissism, exploitation, a megalomaniac tyrant that God keeps his promises. It's no walk among the lilies here. And yet God can still cause a redemptive rose to grow even in this kind of muck and mire. My friends, do you realize what's at stake if we clean up such Bible stories? Do you want to know one of the, I, what I think, one of the number one reasons why the world doesn't believe our message is because we don't make it realistic enough. It just doesn't match up with their realistic life. We live in a world where, where women have been sexually exploited. We live in a world of trafficking and prostitution and pornography We live in a world of molestation, rape. We live in a world of drunken husbands. We live in a world of all kinds of violence and hurt and pain. And yet we don't preach that God is sovereign even over that. And so people are broken and left wondering what to do now that this is their experience. And yet Esther stands up and says, no, even in those kinds of experiences, God is still working. Can you imagine how much hope that would give to someone who's been broken by the exploitation of a megalomaniac, narcissistic, sex-addicted man? 
God can work even in that. If God can work in such filth, is there really anything outside of his sovereign control? My friends, this should be good news to us to hear that God can work even in this. It says women are forcefully taken out of their homes and unwillingly placed in the king's harem where the king will decide their fate for them, that God moves his promise forward. In similar fashion, his redemptive road runs through wars and pandemics and political upheavals and societal mayhem and all the kinds of gross atrocities committed by men. And because this is true, we can trust that God is powerful and can bring redemption out of even your brokenness. Out of all the hardships and the pain and the darkness and the muck and the stains that you have accumulated through life, like broken pieces of glass, God can make a mosaic of glory out of that. That's the kind of message that the world needs to hear. That's the kind of message that women who have secret shame need to hear. God can work even in that. Esther did not rise to the throne with some glorious pageantry. Selfish exploitation, royal abuse of power, and in the same way, He can work through all the hardships and sufferings we go through. Esther 2, chapter 2, introduces us to a man named Mordecai, son of Kish. We'll come back to that detail in weeks to come. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. The narrator tells us that he was one of the original captives that was taken from Jerusalem when Nebuchadnezzar came to put down the rebellion of King Jehoiakim. In other words... This is a dude who has seen some things, okay? He was there when Nebuchadnezzar burst down the gates. He was there when people were slaughtered in the streets. He has seen his own fair share of suffering. And now he's living in Susa as an exile where he's raising his younger cousin, Hadassah, who's a beautiful young woman and an orphan. We don't know how her parents died, but it could have been under the same invasion that Nebuchadnezzar had taken away Mordecai with. It could have been on the journey to Persia that they died. It could have been living in exile and then being oppressed by some some persecutor that they died. We don't know how they died. All we know is that we have Mordecai, who himself has suffered. He's raising an orphan Jewess named Hadassah. They are known as Mordecai and Esther, which are Persian names. And most scholars take this to mean that they were assimilating too much to the Persian life, becoming more Persian than Hebrew. It might be the case. Uh, I definitely don't think that's the author's focus. The author's focus is that there's a girl named Hadassah, also known as Esther, and a man named Mordecai who live in exile in the kingdom. These are small people. They're not powerful people. They're exiles. They're not even in their own homeland. And then we find out the terrible news that Esther is one of the ones that is taken. She's good to look at. She's pretty. She's a pretty gal. 
So the soldiers pick her, they take her, they take her to the king's harem. Terrible circumstances. And yet she still flourishes even in the trial. She soon finds favor with the king's eunuch. And he gives her extra special treatment, a little extra food. It's kind of crazy that that would be the extra special treatment, that you get a little bit more food than everybody else. But then she eventually gets the best place in the harem. It's kind of amazing how we see how this lines up with other stories in the Bible, especially the stories of Joseph and Daniel, right? Very similar circumstances. Both Joseph and Daniel were taken against their will to a foreign court where despite all odds, they find favor with the local leaders. Joseph found favor with Potiphar and becomes the highest ranking slave in in Potiphar's house. Daniel finds favor with Nebuchadnezzar and rises to the rank of a counselor. In all three stories, Joseph, Daniel, Esther, and we'll soon see Jesus. We see that it's possible to flourish in suffering because God is with his people in exile. Because God is present with his people in their suffering, we need not wither under hardship. We need not become depressed. We need not become some strangled version of what we used to be, where we're scrawny and joyless people. We can flourish even in hardship. In Esther's case, she thrives in the house of a depraved, sexual, narcissistic tyrant thrives under such hardship. And pretty soon she'll find the favor of a king, which won't necessarily be great news, but it does show that God is moving things along. God is the one that's in control. Verses 12 through 14 describe the the way this exploitation would happen. So I'm just going to read it. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh, six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in the custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who, in charge of, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again, unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. Now, without going into any unwholesome detail, this was an ex- a sexually exploitive system in which Esther was held captive. This was the cycle that she would have to undergo. Each young woman was given a single night to win the king's pleasure. And then after that, they went to live the rest of their lives as the king's concubine. Now, I just want to help you understand, in ancient harems, there could be hundreds of women. We find out from King Solomon that he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. About a thousand women, all set aside for one man. Now, most of you wives can barely share your husband with the TV. Now, imagine sharing him with 999 other women. Simply put, there are some women that just get forgotten. But they can't be touched by any other man because they have already slept with the king. They're they're used goods. No longer can any man touch them. They basically live life as a widow 
as someone who's destined to die, all their dreams, all their ambitions of having a family and a husband who loves him, all that is dead if the king doesn't delight in them. He sleeps with them, sends them back to, their, to his harem, and then forgets them. This is the exploitive system. It's just royally sanctioned prostitution, isn't it? Where women are undergoing years of beautification or objectification, depending on how you read it. Esther undergoes this same system. She spends a full year being told what she must do to become better looking for the king. What kinds of things she must do in order to please the king. A full year in that. And finally, on one night, it is her turn. And she goes into the king. Again, it's not that she had a choice, is it? I mean, what other choice would she have had? You can't turn down a king like this unless you're willing to die. She goes in involuntarily to the king. So let any romantic notion that this was true love or that the king saw Esther from far off and his heart was drawn to her, let that, let that fade away. That's not what happened here. This is suffering. This is hardship. This is sexual exploitation. And yet, even in the ugliness of this kind of sexual exploitation, God's good and redemptive purposes are not thwarted. They're not hindered. It's a difficult providence to accept, isn't it? I mean, if God is all-powerful, if we, if we truly mean that God is omnipotent, he can do whatever he wills, whatever he wishes, which means he could stop hardship in its tracks, why would he then allow Esther to be involuntarily taken into the king's harem? Why wouldn't a good God prevent this young, innocent Jewish woman from being abused in such a way? Can we really call him good when he was sovereignly allowing such evil to take place? Give God time. Give God, give God space to work. As the narrative unfolds, you will see how the bitterness of suffering is supplanted with the sweetness of God's faithfulness. Bitter suffering supplanted with faithfulness. It is because the king exploited Esther that Esther finds pleasure with the king and is, is moved into the place where she can be an advocate for her people. Though he does not know she's Jewish, there's going to be a moment when it's up to her to go into the king and save her people. God working redemptively behind the scenes. What are the chances? What are the chances that a small innocent Jewish girl named Hadassah would find favor with the king, would excel beyond all the women of the kingdom, the thousands of women that might have been brought into the harem, become queen just moments, maybe right as Haman is making the murderous plans to kill all the Jews in the kingdom. Chances are slim, aren't they? Unless there's a sovereign God working behind the scenes doing things that we can't see. In the moment of experiencing atrocities and out, outrages like this, like the exploitation Esther endured, it's easy to ask, where is God in all of this? 
Some of you may be in your own atrocities and outrages and exploitive systems right now. The book of Esther reminds us that even in the worst of situations, God is still keeping his promises. His purposes may be hidden, so much so that we are left confounded, confused, and left asking why he would allow such tragedy to occur. If God is sovereign, why does he allow cancer? If God is sovereign, why do children die? If God is sovereign, then why do we experience things like rape and molestation and painful uh, abusive husbands? Why do we undergo all of that? And yet the book of Esther reminds us that in due course, even our suffering will prove to be the means by which God advances his good plan. That's a lot of faith to believe that, doesn't it? It takes a lot of faith to believe that just as Joseph's unjust suffering at the hands of his brothers eventually revealed God's good sovereignty, just as Esther being taken into the king's harem reveals God's good sovereignty, there's a day that your suffering will prove to be the means by which God has advanced his redemptive plan. That there was something that could not have been done without that suffering. Some kind of redemptive purpose that could not be realized without you undergoing the thing that you have gone through. This is why as people of God, we must not shy away from suffering. It's a fact of God's sovereignty. It sets the black backdrop so that the diamond of God's good promises and the power of his redemptive hand can be displayed for all. If you did not have that suffering, God's good promise would be diminished in some way. And yet that suffering shows the brilliance, the brightness, the glory of God. You might not choose to go through that. You might not, you may even despise the fact you're going through it. And yet God loves you and is working his redemptive purpose through it. I don't know what the state of Esther was at this point. I don't know what her mental thought was walking into the king's bedroom that night. Was she afraid that she would be reduced to just another concubine who would have to live in the harem forgotten? No hope for a husband. No hope for children. Her dreams and ambitions dead. I don't know how much faith she had that God was working even in her suffering. I do know this, that when we go back and we kind of hover over the text a thousand feet, we can see God's hand working and shaping things, moving things along. Now, before we end chapter two, we have this strange story kind of attached to it. Verse 19 says, now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. It's unclear what the second gathering of the, virgin actually, of the virgins actually was. Some scholars say that, the, that though the king had now found his queen, he loved Esther more than any of the other uh, wives that he had, any of the other concubines. Some say that he still was enjoying this ability to bring in women into his harem. That's kind of crazy to think about, isn't it? That's something that doesn't make it into the Hollywood movies. But he's gathering virgins once again. It's, it's, no, it's in knowing Xerxes and kind of his, his appetites that this doesn't sound all that surprising, if that is the case. However, it's during this time of the second gathering of the virgins that Mordecai happens to be sitting at the king's gate, and he overhears two eunuchs, Bigthan and Teresh, plotting the king's assassination. 
This is not the last time that Xerxes is going to be threatened by his own court. In fact, Xerxes dies later because his own captain of the guard stabs him to death. So his, whole, his own court hates him. And yet at this moment in time, God sovereignly allows Mordecai to be there, to sit where he is, to overhear the eunuchs, to hear their assassination plan, and then Mordecai then takes it to the queen, and the king's life is saved. Now, something you need to know about the Persian Empire, whenever someone did something good for the king or good for the kingdom, their name was immediately written down in the book so that the king could reward them. And typically, the reward system was quick. The king wanted to make an example of those who did good things for him. We know that Mordecai's name is written in the book because of what we read later. But somehow, Mordecai's overlooked, and he doesn't receive a reward. That's strange in Persian culture. The king normally doesn't take his time in rewarding good people. But he delays at this point. And even the delay, even the delay shows God's sovereignty. It will come back up right at the, just the delicious moment when we need a good reversal to happen. Just looking ahead into the story, the king forgets Mordecai, one night can't sleep, and the very same day that Haman wants to come and have Mordecai hanged on his gallows, that's when the king reads of it and remembers to reward Mordecai. An amazing, just in the nick of time kind of sovereignty here that God is working. You see, God is sovereign over all. He's sovereign over who sits on the throne And he's sovereign over where Mordecai sits at the gate, big and small. Who the queen is and how she'll be chosen and even Mordecai's seeming coincidental seat at the gate. He's sovereign over it all. Big, little, insignificant, significant. He's, He's working it all to his plan. Now, before my time runs up, which it already has, uh, I want to I wanna just ask the question. I want to ask the question. If God is sovereign over all things, even evil kings and assassination plots, then is he to be blamed because of the evil of men? Can he be blamed for the fact that Esther and thousands of women were taken, abused, used, and forgotten by this king? How could a good God truly be a sovereign God. So we have a couple options. Either he's not sovereign, but he's good. He has good intentions, but he has not the power to stop suffering. Or he is sovereign, but not good. And so he has the power, but in his evil intent decides not to work. Or there's a third option, that he's sovereign and good, and the good might just be hidden at this point. That we might not yet see the good. My friends, We see it in the story of Joseph. Bad things happen. Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. And yet Joseph later interprets for his brothers that it wasn't just they who were working. It was God himself. He tells them after their reunion, now do not be distressed or angry with yourself because you sold me here. You're responsible for that that evil, for that hatred. And yet God sent me here to preserve life. He adds later, for, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about so that many people should be kept alive as they are today. 
You hear the you hear the 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 tension between the evil of man and the sovereignty of God, the good sovereignty of God. They sold him, God sent him. Let's look at another example. Do you realize that it's because that God works through and in despite of evil people that you are saved? Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross by the hands of lawless men. There's two things we know about Golgotha. One, men vehemently hate God. And if they could, they would kill him as they did with Jesus. Number two, God could have stopped it. Jesus says it in a number of ways. He says it to Peter. He says, Peter, put away your sword. Don't you realize that if I so desired, I could call legions of of angels from heaven to stop what's happening. So here's the question. How is it that God can be a good God and yet allow his son to be killed by evil men? Peter says it's all according to the definite plan of God. In other words, we're not going to make any bones about it. God planned. This is a hard sovereignty. It wasn't accidental. It wasn't as if God looked ahead and he knew that people would kill his son and so he would do something because of it. No, he planned his son to be killed by evil men. Hard sovereignty. Harsh providence. Good salvation, though. Do you realize it's because we have a sovereign God And it's because that sovereign God works through evil things even, not just good things, through even evil things, that we can receive the good benefits of salvation. If God said, you know what? I'm sovereign, but I am not going to work through that evil. You would never be saved. It's because we have a good and sovereign God And it's because this good and sovereign God chooses to work through the evil of men even that we get to experience the salvation and grace of God. If God did not allow lawless men to brutally torture, nail his son to the cross in excruciating pain, the most atrocious event in all of history, if God did not sovereignly allow that, we would never know his goodness. Praise God he works through evil things. And yet he can work through these evil things without getting his hands dirty. You realize at the end of time, we will see how God worked through Hitler, through Haman, through Pharaoh, through the Pharisees, through all the wickedness of men, and yet comes out with gloriously clean hands, and yet we will still be in awe at the manifold wisdom of God who saves his people. My friends, you have had harsh things in your life. You have gone through some terrible things. Some of you have secrets. Some of you have hidden things in the closet, far from the eyes of other people. Some of you are afraid of the evil still to come. Can I just encourage you? God is sovereign 
and good. So how do we apply this? I think it's one thing for you to accept the fact that God is sovereign. He is in control of all things. As bad as they may get, as chaotic as it may seem, as weird as this world may get, as strange and broken and flawed as it proves itself to be, God is still king of the chaos. But take it another step further. It's one thing to say that God is in control. It's one thing to know that God has sovereignly allowed the cancer, for example. God has sovereignly allowed your spouse to die, or God has allowed your child to be buried. It's one thing to accept that God is sovereign over that, and another thing to accept that this sovereign God has done it for good purposes. You see, there's some that are stuck in the sovereignty part, that they haven't quite managed to grow to the point of seeing his sovereignty as a good thing. My friends, we rest under the hand of not just a sovereign God, but a good God. Esther is going to show us that. Only a gloriously sovereign God, only a good and sovereign God could work in the sexual exploitation of Esther to save his people. How can God do such good things out of bad things? I have no idea. That's why he's God and I am not. And so in that we trust we wait. You might be in the midst of suffering right now and wondering where in the world is God in all of this. Be patient. In due course, redemption will be seen. Let's pray. Father God, as we kick off Esther, I pray for hearts to be comforted, for people to be changed, for people to be encouraged and strengthened. I pray that we will trust you, Father, In these days and weeks that we spend studying this book, I pray that you will grow our faith, Father. And all the things that we have to do, this is the most important hour, I think, of the week to just come to grips with your sovereign goodness. God, help us to accept your sovereignty and your goodness by faith as we wait for the day that you will vindicate your people and set us free from all suffering. We pray this in your son's name.